You can turn in your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. I'd like to bring another message from the Minor Prophets from Obadiah. It's not a go-to book. If you go to Matthew and go backwards, you can probably soon find it. It's a one-chapter book. It's a very small book. And just for introducing the book here, we'll use the first verse. And it says, The Vision of Obadiah. So Obadiah is the author. We do not know uh, much about him. We don't know where he was from. We don't know his family. We do know there was other Obadiahs in the Bible, but we're not sure that he's connected to any of them. So we don't uh, know much about him at all. And another thing was the date. We do not know uh, when he wrote this prophecy. It doesn't tell us. We'll have a clue as we go through when we see about the, uh, the destruction of J uh, Jerusalem and we can tell, uh, we have a clue that it was probably during the, uh, right before the captivity there that when the children of Israel went into Babylon. So uh, also we, we see it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, a very uh, short little book, but we're going to see that there's a lot in this little book as we break it down. Now with the uh, Obadiah's name means servant of the Lord, so that gives us a, a clue as to who Obadiah was. Uh, Servant of the Lord is a, is a, describes a humble man uh, sent by God. God gave him a message for, for Edom. And that is the gist of the book here. The message is largely about the downfall of Edom. And it's a very strong message that God gives Obadiah to give to them. And we're going to see here that they were a very proud people. And so it's quite a contrast with the character that we have of Obadiah to that of the people of Eden, the pride of Eden. So in verse 1, we see that it talks about the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord, God concerning Eden. Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. So here we see, as a, a, it calls it a rumor, it could be translated report. Uh, Jer Jeremiah also prophesied against uh, Edom with the, uh, he announced their doom. And this is possibly the rumor that he had heard. So other prophets we know spoke out against Edom as well, like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Joel, Malachi. So there's quite a few that have messages to Edom. Now the key verse here is in verse 3, and just bring this in now. It says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, and you who lived in the cleft of the rocks, and make your home on the heights, and who say to yourself, who can bring me down? So there we can see the heart of Eden, and their, their, how pride they were, proud they were. What a proud heart that we see here. Well, their bragging rose up to heaven, and God says he's going to bring them down, and we'll see that in these verses. Now, before we go further, we want to ask the question, who are the Edomites? Who are the Edomites? Well, they are the descendants of Esau, the descendants of Esau, and I believe to get the most out of this uh, prophecy, it would do us well to look a little bit at Jacob and Esau, and that, I intend to do that, just to to tell the little bit of the story about the rivalry between the twin boys. Now, in Genesis chapter 25, 
we see that um, Rebecca and Isaac, Rebecca was, was barren, and she prayed, and then she conceived, and she had twin sons in her womb. And she went to the Lord as to why they were so rambunctious in her womb. And this is what the Lord replied to her. The Lord said in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 23, the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, and one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. So God said these two unborn babies are going to be two nations. And we have the two nations from, nation from Jacob is Israel, and we have the nation from Esau will be the Edomites. Edom. And they said the one will be stronger than the other and the older will serve the younger. And this struggle that we're going to see is goes, it starts in the womb. And this goes on, this is the beginning of many years to come. This went through many generations. Now we know Esau was born first and the Bible says he, he was hairy as a garment, red hair. Jacob was born second and he had a hold of Esau's heel when he was born, and he was named heel grabber or supplanter. So uh, they grew up, Esau grew up, he loved the outdoors. He would have been one that loved the hunting and going out in the fields, and he would have shopped at Cabela's. Then we have Jacob was the opposite. He was the mama's boy, he stayed at home, he tended to sheep, he loved to cook in the kitchen. And we see the family favoritism started there. It says, the Bible says that Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. Well, one day Jacob was cooking stew and Esau comes in from a bad day of hunting and he, didn't, and he was very hungry, hungry as a bear. And he said, give me some of your red stew. And Jacob says, well, if you sell me your birthright, I'll give you some of this stew. And, you know, we can read that and not think a lot of it. But what does that birthright really mean? What, what was going on here? We can read this and we can think that it's not really a big deal. Uh, Esau selling his birthright. Well, it was a big deal. What did the birthright include? Well, the birthright first had a financial aspect of it, and that was the double inheritance. And then they would take care of mom and dad. It also had a paternal blessing. It's where dad would give the, the oldest son the blessing. This included the spiritual aspect of it. And it also had, it was a patriarch of the family. He carried on the family name and this, uh, when dad was gone. So this was a big deal uh, back in that day. It was an honor. It was, it was an honor to get this birthright. And when Jacob said, sell me your birthright, Esau should have said, what do, you, what do you think? What are you thinking? You know, why would I do that over a bowl of soup? And nothing's worth that. But no, he said, I'm about to die. What good is my birthright, was his response. So he wasn't at the place of starving. I mean, he was hungry, sure. But he, you know, he, he, maybe he thought Jacob wasn't serious. And, but the, in, in, uh, in the account, uh, he should have been stopped in his tracks when Jacob said, swear to me this day 
swear to me to this day and that he was selling his birthright. And in the same sentence, he did that. And, 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 uh, yeah, it, it, and it says he, he sold his birthright. That swearing would be like notarizing a document today. So there was a very serious moment. And Esau, in a moment of weakness, when he says, I'm hungry, what good is my birthright? And, you know, the problem wasn't that he loved the outdoors and he loved to hunt. But it was rather the carnal choice that he made that reflected his value on spiritual things. Then we come to the time when uh, uh, Isaac is getting older and it's time to give the paternal blessing. And it seems maybe Isaac didn't know what would happen because Isaac told him that he was, uh, when he was nearing death and probably legally blind, he told, tells him to go out and hunt and get, bring some venison in. And uh, he calls on him to, then he'll, after they'll eat the venison meal together and then he's going to give him the blessing. Well, Rebecca overheard this, and she crafted a plan that, uh, that Jacob would uh, prepare a meal and take it into him, and she knew what Isaac liked. And Jacob said, look, Mom, Dad's going to know I am not Esau. He's, I'm smooth, and he's hairy, and, and my voice, God, God, uh, Dad's not going to be uh, fooled here. And Rebecca says, let it be on me. Let it be on me. Just obey me. And so Jacob did, and she cooked this savory meat up, and she took Esau's clothes and put it on him, took goat skins and put them around his arms and his neck so he feels like uh, Esau, but he's Jacob. And he goes into dad, and he deceives Isaac that he was Jacob. Now Jacob, I mean, Isaac wasn't all convinced. He even said, well, the voice sounds like Jacob, but you feel like Esau. But he went ahead and blessed him. And he gave him the blessing. Now he possessed the blessing. And it, the Bible says, No more than he finished, that Esau came in from the field with his venison and said, Dad, here I am. And he says, Well, who was just here before you? And, and he said, uh, it, it, The Bible says that es uh, Isaac trembled very exceedingly. It's like probably almost had a heart attack. What happened? And here... He figured it out that it was Jacob that he was deceptive and took that blessing. And we see, if we read the account, we'll see that Esau begged for a blessing. Just give me a blessing also. And Isaac said, no, I have, what I have blessed, I have blessed. And he uh, refused to give him a blessing and goes on to say how he will serve him. And the hatred began. In the, in that same account there, it says, and Esau hated Jacob. Esau hated Jacob, and there was bad blood that just never ended. You know, even though Jacob and Esau reconciled together when Jacob came back, they met and they reconciled. Their descendants, I don't believe, ever did. The Bible just records constant hatred between Edom and Israel over a bowl of soup. So these two, when we get the account, we look at this, the, the, uh, the background here of Jacob and Esau, and we can see that these two uh, boys represented two ways of life. Two ways of life. You know, uh, a regard for spiritual things and a disregard for spiritual things. Here in Hebrews, this is written in the New Testament, says, Let there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. 
For you know that, how, that afterward, that he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. So here he was rejected. It says he was rejected, and he found no place of repentance. You know, he was, I believe, sorry for the outcome, but I don't think he was sorry for his sin. He was sorry for the compromise that he made, but he didn't uh, value spiritual things. He viewed it as no big deal at the time. Well, God, does, God did view it as a big deal. And so we have the verse here that says, lest, uh, lest anyone be a fornicator or profane person. That could be translated godless. I believe the NIV calls, says godless person as Esau. He was you know, the opposite of uh, godly. Now, this, it goes a step further here in Malachi. Here's the opening verses in Malachi that says the uh, burden of the Lord, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and I laid his mountains, his, his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. So here this is written in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, later on, after the boys were dead, and God says, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau. And we could say, why? Why? Well, I believe it was Jacob regarded spiritual things and, and, and Esau did not. Esau didn't regard spiritual things. And now we look at, this, at Esau as an example for the whole nation of Edomites. You know, his character is translated into all of this, this, uh, all the Edomites, into now into a huge nation. And they were, uh, the boys went two different ways and formed two different uh, nations. J Jacob became the father of Israel and Esau became the father of Eden, just as God said to Rebekah. And... Uh, <clears throat> And we see here in Obadiah, God even mentions Esau by name as, uh, as the father of the, the Edomites. So they were distant cousins, but yet the conflict continued from generation to generation. They were long-standing enemies, long-standing enemies. And you know, God told them in De uh, Deuteronomy that they should not abhor an Edomite, for he is thy brother. And we're gonna, and they didn't listen to that, and neither either side listened to it. They were long-standing enemies, and uh, we know when when the famine the, the famine took Jacob down to Egypt, and then back up to the promised land, but and Edom settled in the mountains, the mountain range on the the southern Jordan, just all, or just across Israel, and the towns would have been like Petra and uh, Basra and Teman. The Bible talks a lot about Teman. So the, Edo, the Edomites treated Israel very badly. And you know, when, uh, when, when the children of Israel were coming up from Egypt, they came up to the area of Eden, and we know the story how Eden did not let them pass through. There was a road, the main road passed through Eden. They didn't let them go through. They had to go out around when they were coming up to enter into the promised land. So they treated Israel very badly over the generations and over time, and God noticed this. And he disapproved of it. And God, and this prompted God to give a message to Obadiah against the Edomites. And that's what we have here 
in the, uh, the book here of Obadiah. Now, just for an outline, we see here the first 16 verses is all about the destruction of Eden. And if we could break it down into the how, what's going to happen, and the why. He gives clear reasons that we're going to look at, clear reasons why the judgment's coming. And then we see the second half there is the promised restoration of Israel. So we, uh, let's look at, let's read the first 10 verses now. And then Obadiah says, The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. That's against Edom. Behold, I will have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thy heart has deceived thee. Thou hast dwellest in the cleft of the rocks, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as an eagle, and though thou set thy nest among, among the stars, thence I will bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they, have, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers come to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are, these, how are the things of Esau searched out? How are, are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought even the even the, to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Eden and understand an understanding of the mount of Esau? And thy, mountain, and thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed. To the end, every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For thy violence against the, thy, brother Jacob, uh, thy brother Jacob's shame shall cover thee, and thou shall be cut off forever. So I think I'll stop there, and we'll pick up when it gives more clear reasons. But here we can see in verse 1, he says, let us rise up against her. And that's talking about Edom. He starts by saying, God has sent a message to the nations of, uh, God has uh, sent a message to the nations to rise up against her. The Lord has declared war on Edom. He says in verse 2, behold, I will make you small. And then verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. So here Obadiah says, I have a message from God. He said, the pride of your heart has deceived you. God is calling out the proud heart. You know, the, uh, in Proverbs it says, six things that the Lord hate, yea, seven are abomination. And the first one mentioned there is a proud look. You know, God hates pride. It's the opposite of his nature. And we see God also resists proud. He resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And I believe the pride that he's talking about here is, a, is more than self-importance. We're going to talk about a little bit later the, uh, the, the self-important aspect of pride. But here I believe he's talking about the self-sufficiency, the, their sense of independence from God. They, they had the attitude that, uh, of, that uh, uh, it's, it's an attitude of life that declares its ability to, to live without God. It's their attitude 
that God, we don't need God. And uh, as I was thinking about that, you know, doesn't that remind us of our country we live in? You know, we live in, everything's going away from, uh, that there is no God, but there is a God. You know, here, these Edomites, they boasted about their security. Who can bring me down to the ground? Who can, talks about their arrogant attitude that invites God to intervene. And here in the picture we see Edom was in the mountain range uh, the, uh, of, in the mountains of the clay, the, the red clay, the red, and they cut their, they cut the, into this rock here and they lived there. They were up into the rock. Literally, they were nested up in the rock, as it says in that verse 3. They were up high. It gave them a good advantage. They were up, uh, they could see the enemy coming from afar off. And here's another one that talks about the Mount of Esau. That's Mount Seir. That's where it would be. And that's where they were up high, and they looked, they literally looked down. They had an advantage uh, for, uh, they, they could see an enemy coming afar off, and defense would have been very easy for them. And it became a prideful thing for them. They, it says they were exalted like an eagle, you know, nested in the stars. They thought they really had things under control. And, you know, there's something about man that we like to get up high. You know, whether it's, whether it's um, uh, like the Tower of Babel, you know, or, or building the tallest skyscraper. You know, 9-11, they, what they go for? The Twin Towers are best. You know, it's, it's a pride thing. And, uh, and uh, it's, Eden thought they were invincible. Who shall bring me down to the ground? Can you imagine that arrogant spirit? God says, I will bring you down. I will bring you down. Pride is sinful and will not be tolerated. Uh, pride goeth before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Then we, we, we see that the, the here talks about how this judgment is going to come. So it was number one, it was because of their pride. Uh, I believe that was the, the most important factor here. But then it's talking about the, the it goes into verse, uh, verses 5 uh, to 10 there, and it talks about how this judgment is going to come. And first in verse 5, it says, All their treasures will be stolen. You know, they're uh, unlike burglars who come and they'll take what they can get. If somebody breaks into your house, they're going to fill their pockets and carry out what they can, load what they can to pick up, and they're gone. They don't take everything. Or like the grapevine, the grape pickers, it says, they, uh, they, they always will leave some behind. And the point that is being made here, that this is going to be complete destruction. This is going to be complete destruction. And then in verse 6, it talks about the hidden things sought up. Uh, and notice here in verse 6, it calls out uh, Esau. How are the things of Esau searched out? Calls out Edom by their father's name, Esau. And then in verse 7, it says their allies will turn on them. You know, Eden had a, Edom had a main road going through this rugged terrain. And this was a, a, a heavy trade route. So they were allies with a lot of friends. They had a lot of friends and they could benefit from this trade route. But the ones that were going to overthrow them would be the ones they were allies with, their friends. And they were, they were uh, trusting in, in man and they were going to deceive them. And in verse 8, it talks about the wise men will be destroyed. 
You know, they thought they were pretty wise. They were known for their military capabilities. They were up in the mountain. They were really, uh, their defense was uh, something they bragged about. And, but they were also known for their intellectual uh, capabilities. They're, they're wise men. Actually, in Jeremiah, uh, I don't have the verse here, but it talks about Jeremiah's calling them out and said, is there going to be any wisdom uh, left? Like the wise men, they were known for their, their wise men and their, they were going to be destroyed. They're wise and knowledgeable men of Eden. And then verse 9, it talks about their military. You know, it uh, speaks of their military ability. They will be ter- but they will be terrified. And, you know, God says their army will be terrified when they come against me. And says everyone in Esau's mountain will be cut down. They thought they had the strongest military. They had the best defense. They viewed themselves as nested up as eagles and into the, the, the stars like a fortress city. And they even had the audacity to say, who can bring us down? But if God chooses to bring them down, they will come down. You know, it doesn't matter how powerful a country's military is. If God says it's time for judgment, it's time for judgment. And we can't boast about anything when it comes to God, uh, God working out his plans. Then in verses uh, 10 to 16, we see that he, gets, he gives the, uh, in verse 10, so it talks about the violence against thy brother. It says, for thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shall sh- Jacob shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. And then I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. This talks about the reasons that we're going to look at. Clear reason says, in, that, in the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even though, even though was, one, was as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on, thy, on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in that day over their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of their distress. Thou shouldest not enter into the gates of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, uh, thou hast, should not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossroads to cut off those that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those that did that his that did remain in the day of his distress for the day of the lord is uh, is near upon all the heathen as as thou hast done it shall be done unto thee thy reward shall return upon thine own head for as thou as for as ye have drank upon my holy mountain so shall all the heathen drink continually yea they shall drink and they shall swallow down and they shall be as though they had not been and i think i'll stop there So here we can see he goes into their reasons uh, for the coming destruction. He gets specific, and he lays out the reasons here. God says, they, they, he, he lays them out, and he says they crossed a line. They crossed a line. And so God is judging Eden, uh, Edom, the violence and the cruelty and the betrayal against Israel. Thy brother Jacob, he calls him thy brother Jacob. And he lays out different charges here. A lot of them start with, thou shouldest not. Thou shouldest not. For the, the, the violence against, he calls them out for the violence against thy brother Jacob. 
So first one we, we see is they refuse to help their brother in need. You know, in verse 10, it says they stood on the other side. NIV would say they stood aloof. And uh, they, they were called out for doing nothing. They stood by just watching. While Jerusalem was being besieged by the enemy, the, and I believe it was the Babylonians, they stood there and watched and they didn't lift a finger. They probably just said, you know, they're getting what they deserve. Or uh, they had it coming. But they refused to help their brother in need. They refused to help their brother in need. And then we can see they despised their brother. They despised their brother. You know, it says they shouldest not look down upon thy brother. And here we see they had their, before we talked about their self-sufficiency. Well, here we can see their, their self-importance. You know, there's two sides of pride. One is that when you... Uh, you uh, high view of yourself and the other side is a low view of others and that's what they were doing they were despising they were despising them and you can't have one without the other if you have a high view of yourself you're going to look down on others and you think about it uh, Edom they were up on they were up on the mountain and looking down literally looking down on others and they're called out for looking down on thy brother they rejoiced uh, they despised their brother. And then next here we see they rejoiced over their brother's misfortune. And this is what he's calling them out for. You rejoiced over Israel's misfortune. They were actually glad when the enemy besieged Jerusalem. They delighted in their calamity. They became cheerleaders of the enemy against their brother. And there's a uh, Psalms 137 that uh, it's, it's, and this is where I believe that it would, the enemy here, this unnamed enemy, I believe is the Babylonians because of this connection. But in Psalms 137, we have a psalm that is uh, a song that we sing by the rivers of Babylon. This is when they would be in captivity there by the rivers of Babylon. We sat down, yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps on the willows in the midst thereof. And going down to verse 4, how can we sing in a strange land? They were in a strange land and they were lamenting. They can't sing. They're in, a, they're, uh, in, in Babylon. They're in captivity. And then we go to this same psalm and we go down to verse 7. And it says, remember, O Lord, the children of Edom. In the day of Jerusalem, who said, raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. So here we can see they were rejoicing. Edom is called out by name that they stood there and they cheered and they supported the Babylonians when they destroyed Jerusalem. They were shouting with glee, you know, like, wipe it out, wipe it out. They rejoiced in their calamity and God is calling them out for this. And he calls them thy brother. They're distant cousins. And I believe that's a lesson for us. God notices if we're rejoicing in others' misfortunes. You know, having that little, that good feeling within when something uh, happens, especially if it's somebody that did us wrong or if it's somebody that we don't see eye to eye with, how easy it is to rejoice, have that little bit of good feeling inside uh, and just say, oh, they had it coming or it's, you know, they're getting what they deserve. The Bible says in Proverbs that do not rejoice when your enemy falls. Do not rejoice. God notices this. God noticed this. He calls them out for this. And I believe he notices it in the Old Testament and he notices it today. When we rejoice when our enemy uh, 
uh, the calamity of, the, uh, of her brother. Then it says, thou shouldest not enter the gates in verse 13. So they weren't the ones that really broke, breached the gates, but they were there and happy to take advantage of it. So they, they are helping themselves. They're getting their share of the spoil. And it says there they also laid hands on their substance. So they joined in. Instead of helping their brother, they're helping themselves, and they're, they're uh, taking advantage. And then in verse 14, it says they, they, they stood us not in the crossroads. They shouldn't have stood in the crossroads. So as the city was being attacked, Israelites would try to flee. And they stood at the intersections, and they would catch them and, and take them, give them, hand them over to the enemy. And they were called out because of what they were doing here. They were helping the enemy. So notice what he describes here. First, the Jerusalem is being attacked and besieged, and then they rejoice in it. And then they're soon helping out in the attacking, and then they're laying hands on their substance, and now they're catching the escapees and handing them over. So it's a terrible way for, uh, to respond to someone that God describes as thy brother. That's how God describes him, as thy brother. He's laying out the reasons for the destruction that's going to happen. You see, they crossed the line. God has a line. They crossed the line. And uh, I believe the ultimate reason was for the pride of their heart has deceived them. They felt that self-sufficiency and self-importance, and God judged, uh, God judged Edom. Now, there's some principles here. I'm not sure when to bring them in, but we would just look at God judges other nations by how they treat Israel. We see that here. There's a principle. You know, that's, that's true back then, and it's true today. I believe God sees, God uh, notices, they're judged by the way they treat his people. You know, you think about it with uh, when someone messes with our children, you know, we can get rattled. And somebody messes with God's children, he notices. He notices. He will, he sees that. And we see that all through the, you know, through the, through the Bible, the, the, uh, the hatred for the Jews. We see it in, in, uh, in the Holocaust. We see it today. Uh, why? Because, you know, I'm not sure all, but the promise, the children of the promise. But we see a principle here. God judges other nations by how they treat Israel. And we see also God, uh, the God of Israel is the God of all nations. Some people think, you know, well, the God of, the Jehovah God is the God of Israel, and that's, he's not the God of other nations. But we see here, and through the Bible, God is the God of all nations. God will judge all nations. And uh, judgment came slowly, and we'll get to that here in verse 10. We'll come back to that. So the God of Israel is the God of all nations. Though so now after he's talking about all these atrocities, that Edom did to Israel. Then in verse 15, he comes out with two repeated messages in the Bible. Two repeated messages. Number one is the day of the Lord is near. And number two is you reap what you sow. In verse, in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. And as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. So... When you think about the day of the Lord is near, it refers to God's judgment and uh, on the wicked. And it's a, it's a metaphor, as we think about, to, it describes God's judgment on nations or nation. 
And also we see the reaping what you sow. It has been, it's, it, as it has been done, it'll be done to you. That's just a principle that rings loud and clear. Through the, through the prophets, through the Bible, you reap what you sow. You see, they were judged here according to their deeds. There was a measure for measure. As you have uh, met, by what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you. So there's a principle in God's word that you reap what you sow. And you will be judged by your deeds. They were judged according to their deeds. Now, the day of the Lord, we could spend a lot of time in these, we can't. But the day of the Lord is, uh, has two aspects to it. When you think about the... The destruction of the wicked. That's what we think about. But also it has the salvation of the righteous. And we see that. So along with Edom's destruction, we have Israel's deliverance. You know, they, though they were attacked merciless many times and they went into captivity, they will go on to receive a blessing. They will go on to receive a blessing. And verse 17 is a uh, change here. It says, starts with the word, but, but. Mount Zion shall be delivered. Verse 17 says, But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. And the house of Jacob a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. They shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall be not any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain of the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead, and the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess all that of, of the Canaanites, and even unto Zephyrath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in uh, Shephirath shall possess the cities of the south, and saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The kingdom shall be the Lord's. What a good ending. But here in verse 17, we see a change. But Mount Zion shall be delivered. It talks about Jacob as a fire, and it talks about Esau as stubble. And today, if you look at the map... Uh, the maps, Israel is on the map and Eden is not on the map. You see, God is in control of map, making the maps. You know, when you think about the, uh, what Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he said, he hath, uh, he hath made us all one blood. And then he says, he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation or something like that. And really he was saying is, God draws the maps. God draws the maps. And today, uh, it says here in, uh, in verse 17, and the house of Jacob shall possess, possess their possessions. You know, it didn't look like <clears throat> things didn't look good for him at that time of the captivity. Uh, you know, the, uh, when Edom betrayed Israel there, what we were looking at, <clears throat> but Many centuries, after many centuries, the Jews returned to their land. And they're still returning today. We see God's hand in this. We see God's hand in this and their, uh, in the fulfillment of prophecy. This message that would have been uh, given here would have given hope to those that were taken off into captivity. Those that were displaced that someday they would return. 
And we see that happening when God, uh, when in 1948, when Israel was again made a state. Now, I would like to just look a little bit about in verses 19 and 20. It talks a lot about the, the land. And I believe it's actual land, physical land. God promised to Abraham actual land. And here's just a map. This is an older map. It has the 12 tribes listed on here. But the, uh, this would be the uh, Israel. And we see the West Bank is outlined on the right side. And the, and the, uh, and the Gaza Strip is, is outlined there on the, on the, uh, the west side. Did I say the, it's the west side. So, but the land that's mentioned here is some of the disputed land today. When we think about, it talks about the, uh, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and Samaria. And you'll see that in the middle. Right there is Ephraim and Samaria. And that's what it's saying here. Obadiah is prophesying that they will possess this land. And that land today is in the West Bank. They are not possessing that land. Then it talks about the cities, uh, or the Mount of Esau, that they'll possess them. And that's to the, uh, the bottom there at Edom. And that is the mountains of Eden, and they have, uh, th that's in Jordan today. They do not possess that land today. And then it talks about the, the plains of Philistia, and that's over by the coast. And there we have where the Gaza Strip is. All of those cities on that side there are of the old Philistine cities. And some of the old names yet, like Gaza is an old name in the Bible. But that's in the, that's in the Gaza Strip, and, and Israel does not possess that today. So today they don't occupy all that, this land, but someday they will. Someday they will. Obadiah says that the Israel will possess its possession. And that's not a small statement. It's, a matter, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. So I believe there's, we see a pro, in this promise we see a progression of steadily possessing what was already given to them. If you would see the actual promised land... The Euphrates, it goes all the way east to the Euphrates River. And that line goes off the map there. So the promised land that God promised to Abraham goes far over. And uh, so, but we see this climaxing. I believe that this land is, they're going to be possessing land. And it'll be climaxing when the Lord returns. And all that was intended to be theirs will be theirs. Will, will it be, when will it be? Was, was it when Jesus returns, when he steps foot in Mount Olives? Uh, but it, the Bible says here Ob in Obadiah, Israel shall possess their possession. And that is just no small statement. Now let's go back yet to, we're looking at Edom will be cut off forever. It says in verse 10, you know, their judgment didn't come immediately. Their judgment came over hundreds of years. It came very slow. God didn't crush them with one blow. He could have. But he did it slowly. And verse 16 brings the idea out that he sapped their strength slowly. And so we know that Edomites existed actually into the New Testament. Because the Herods were Edomites. They were Idiums. Uh, that's Roman for Edomite. So the Herods, the Herod the Great. Uh, Herod that uh, tried to kill Jesus. The Herod that uh, beheaded John the Baptist. The Herod that was eaten by worms. These were all descendants of Edom. And we see that, that uh, they, they, they correlate with, they match up to what, how God describes the pride of their heart has deceived them. You know, the last one that was eaten by worms there had a proud heart, didn't let, 
wanted all the glory. So they, those, the, 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 the Edomites uh, ended up in 70 AD. Uh, if you look at history, Josephus writes about it, how 20,000 Edomites came in and joined the Jewish zealots uh, and they were killed or captured and that was the end of the Edomite kingdom. So the ancient area of Edom, or Petra, was only rediscovered. The picture we showed of Petra there was only rediscovered in 1812. So here it says they'll be cut off forever. They were cut off, and Obadiah's prophecy came true, and what's unfulfilled will still come true. So we started out with Jacob and Esau as two represents two ways of life. And so I asked the question, am I a Jacob or am I an Esau? You know, Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. His attitude was, what's my birthright worth? He placed little value on spiritual things. He gave into the flesh. He, uh, he didn't take spiritual matters seriously. He was, had the attitude of living for now, uh, immediate satisfaction physical desires, and he was godless. He was profane. Hebrews called him profane, which is uh, like godless. So he was never sorry for his sin, but he was sorry for the, the compromise that he did, but he never repented. There was no godly sorrow. He lived for this world, and, uh, and, and it didn't care about the future. Jacob was quite the opposite. Jacob was godly. You know, he wrestled with God. He wrestled with God there, and I believe he, until he got the blessing, you know, he, he came out a changed man, humble, broken. And Hebrews describes him as leaning on his staff. He was lame through that. But God changed his name to Israel, which means let God prevail. He became Israel. So he was godly. He was humble. And today we see, you know, Israel is on the map and Eden is not. Esau's way of life is given, I believe, to us as a warning written there in the New Testament, a warning for us. So let's, let's follow the example of Jacob. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and love. Thank you for the prophecy of Obadiah, the story of Jacob and Esau, and the ending that, uh, of, of Eden, Lord, would help us to humble ourselves. We believe that, that Eden was very proud, and, and you resist the proud and give grace to the humble. So we, may we be humble and, uh, and following your ways, for Father. We thank you for each one here. May your blessing rest upon us as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Okay, let's stand together if we